This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Good morning, New Zealand. Welcome to another roundup. Never Rise the Boundaries coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawks Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton. And I'm Neville Wallace broadcasting from Hara. On my roundup this morning, I have co leader of Groundswell, Bryce McKenzie, weatherman Philip Duncan, and to conclude today's show, we catch up with Jim Hopkins from Homeroo. Today we have a lesson in history of how nations have dictated to their farmers of how to farm. Back in 1958, China had a food production problem. Their government saw fit to tell farmers what to do and had a drop in production. Then a national decree that all sparrows were to be eliminated, which they did. The following year, crops were devastated by hordes of insects. Just lately, Sri Lanka is another country where farming has failed due to government interference and is heavily indebted to the International Monetary Fund. With me today is Bryce McKenzie, co-leader of Groundswell, explaining why we don't like the prospects of he Wakanawa being imposed on New Zealand farmers. Well, my guest today is co-founder of Groundswell, Bryce McKenzie. Good afternoon, Bryce. Good afternoon, Neville. How are you doing? Oh, a box of fluffy ducks, you can't be anything else nowadays. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this business of emissions, is this a lesson in how to kill a viable business and should agriculture pay emission fees when part of the Paris Accord stipulates we do all we can to control emissions but not at the, fight of, not at the price of food production? What do you reckon, Bryce? Oh, I reckon they've forgotten that clause. They seem to remember all the ones that suit them, but the ones that actually don't suit them, they never bring up. So they're actually breaking the Paris Accord by what they're doing, Neville. Yeah. Now, the other one I've got here, the split gases. Uh, the farmers are up to speed with all this stuff. Uh, Bryce, I, I, I have a bit of trouble getting my head around, especially when you talk methane which can come from other sources and stock, like swamps, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, we've spent years draining wetlands, uh, perhaps not so much wetlands, but just wet, wet areas on our farms, particularly down at this end of the country. Neil, uh, we, we've got a very uh, hard can, uh, clay pan under our topsoils, and um, we, it doesn't take much for us to get ponding and... Uh, deterioration of vegetation around the ponding areas. So for us, it's almost been essential that we use tile drains to actually clear that water out. So in the past, that would certainly have been um, causing a lot of methane. And now they're telling us we can't do any more tile drains or anything like that. So uh, some of the land will be naturally reverting back to swamplands, and that will definitely be a methane problem. Well, I think something we're talking about is the measuring of methane, Neville, and uh, uh, I don't know whether people have actually got to grips with it, but um, methane is something that uh, only lasts for 9 to 12 years, so it's got a mean average of about 10 or a bit more, and it's gone. It, it 
becomes carbon dioxide and goes back into the cycle. And of course, as we all know, it's uh, absorbed by vegetation. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor David Frame, two weeks ago, and he's known this for a long time, as a lot of these climate scientists have, know that uh, methane has been overestimated by around about 400%. Now, that's because they've been using a metric called GWP100, which takes um, what happens is the gas is uh, predicted to dissipate over 100 years. But now they've found that uh, methane doesn't, it, it's gone 10 years, they've had the, the, the metrics are changing. So that's what is called GWP star. So it's global warming potential star. So all metrics have done in the past are going out the window. Now, our own climate scientists in New Zealand agree to this, but yet we're still landed with the same old metrics that, that have been around for years. And um, David Frame is one of the guys that set these GWPs up, so he understands them. And now he's saying, hang on a minute, we've got this wrong. But are the politicians listening? Not at all. We're just cranking on, Bill. Oh, right. Yeah. Hey, is um, what's been proposed covered dairying as well as sheep and beef? Are we all on the same boat or lorry or whatever you want to call it, Bryce? Because there seems to be two aspects to the sheep and beef deer farming as opposed to dairying. What's your explanation there? Well, the thing is that, that with um, sheep and beef being more um, uh, less intensive, of course, it's got uh, a wider area and less uh, intense activity, so it's going to be more subject to uh, running into problems, uh, so-called problems, as far as uh, methane is concerned, which doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up at all, because you'd naturally think that because it's a much larger area, there's more chance of uh, sequestration. But you see, they're not taking sequestration into it, so that doesn't come into it at all. But with dairy being so intensive, you're using a far less area, and I guess your return per area is much higher, so it's not going to be affected the same. And I probably haven't explained that terribly well, but that's just the way it's working out under these metrics. Yeah. Bryce, I read that the PM said that the changes made to in the consultation document were based on advice from the Climate Change Commission. Bryce, have you any confidence in this group of people that are advising government? <laughs> Listen, when you get the guy that's actually hitting it, uh, <laughs> Rod Carr, and he fronts up and he tells the world that, well... You know, you can't really count what New Zealand farmers do as far as feeding the world because they only feed the feed the elite rich ones, um, and they eat twice what they should have uh, daily rations anyway. And I wonder if anybody's ever explained to them that these elite rich, if we don't feed them, then they're going to swipe the feed out of the mouths of the ones that can't afford it anyway. So. I mean, how can you take somebody like that with credibility? How can you think that he's just credible? Wasn't it Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's get on to, can you explain the sequestration because farmers will be penalised for trees they've not planted, oh, I've got that wrong. Now, explain the sequestration, but uh, not 
going to get credit for the trees I've planted process. Yet we hear that the Amazon forest is being leveled to grow more coffee, yet New Zealand is covered by 38% of forest, which is uh, 10.1 million hectares. Is that taken into account for sequestration as well? <laughs> Bryce, it's a complicated bloody question, I know, but uh, I think it should be no. discussed. Yeah, yeah, it's not. No, it's not counted at all, and, and that's the ridiculous part about it. Now, when they were first meeting this Ewok Ekenau, sequestration was supposed to be any vegetation that was planted after 2017, was it? It might have been early, it might have been 2008. I can't remember off the top of my head. So all that was supposed to be taken into account, but the Climate Change Commission and the wisdom decided it's all too hard, let's chuck it out. So we won't count that sequestration. Now, from what I understand, the only reason they were using that year as a date line was because that's when Google Maps basically got up and running. So uh. they could check that they could check that we all weren't telling lies about how long the trees had been planted. So that's I understand why that timeline came in. But as far as all our native bush, and if you've travelled the west coast of the South Island, you'll know there's just. I mean, it's all native bush. It goes for miles and miles and miles, the whole length of the coast. And it's not just a, a hedgerow. It's miles and miles of width as well. So, no, nobody takes that into consideration. It's just ridiculous. I'm disappointed, and I've seen a lot and experienced a lot of that bush down there too, Bryce. So I totally agree with you on that one. Now, sort of to wind things up a tad, Bryce, what's the cost of this exercise and stupidity when we lose 2.8 billion revenue, meat processes will close, transport operations cease, schools close, and I've heard that 92,000 workers will be out of work. Has this been taken into account? No, well, look, obviously it hasn't been, um, and you've, to put it in simple terms, 20% of sheep and beef farms, 6% dairy farms. So that's 26%, which means that it's over a quarter. So therefore, uh, a quarter of everybody that services farming industries is looking at losing their jobs. Uh, a quarter of businesses are looking at uh, going out of business. Uh, but that's the kick-on effect from that. Like I can think of the number of people in the sport industries here that do really well out of us, farmers, and I'm a farmer, and they go into town and they spend the money in town. So it has a kick-on effect, a, a multiplying effect. So um, I don't know whether I've answered your question exactly right, but it's going to be massive, Neville. It's, uh, repercussions are probably far higher. They've never modelled it, incidentally, except to say that it's going to be 26%. That's all they've done. I don't think they've actually done the modelling of the cost. Well, because uh, when you talk modelling... Uh, how often has modelling got it right? Because if modelling was as good as what they say it is, why aren't people using that to predict the outcome from a race, gambling, whatever? Yeah, exactly right. We are, we, I, I shouldn't have used the word modelling. I should have just said best guess. Yeah, that's well, all it is. Oh, Bryce, we're getting near the end of this, but uh, I, I'm just uh, gobsmacked that a lot of this is done, and I understand it's just done for bragging rights. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. 
the number of stock and decrease our output and product that another country will pick it up and they will produce stuff like that uh, substandard pork we get from other countries it's not up to uh, New Zealand standards won't we? Oh that's exactly what will happen uh, we've got to get the food from somewhere but then that food security is going to become a problem it's already becoming a problem in Europe and it's going to become a some folk about complaining climate the other day which I think is just an excuse for doing nothing. Look let's get on to this Bryce. Where and when can people take part in your next protest that's closest to them? Well at this stage um, it's on Thursday and we're asking people to meet and we're focused on the four main cities, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin and we're doing that because we expect to have to escalate this because we don't think the government's going to listen to us just in one crack. No. So, so we're, we're, that's the centres we're focused on, but already, uh, and I can't give you them off the top of the head, I think there's about another 10 towns and major towns that have put their hands up and saying, no, we're going to run one as well. Uh, if you keep, go to our website, um, uh, www, oh no, it's not www, so it's uh, groundswell.co.nz. Yep. Uh, go to our website. Everything's going to be updated there all the time. Um, you can join up with us that way, you'll get updated emails. And of course, our social media, which is just uh, looks like it's taken over social media <laughs> in New Zealand at the present time, uh, we're certainly putting it out through social media. Are getting an absolutely incredible feedback. So uh, tractors, trucks, huge with dogs on, please, and get the dogs barking in town. Uh, in your cars is fine. On foot is great. Uh, we're, you know, like everybody to respect private property for yeah. sure, but we just want numbers to turn out and tell this government that uh, we're not going to take it. Well, thank you for your time, Bryce McKenzie. You, Mel, Laurie and team are doing a great job for New Zealand. Go well, my friend. Thank you, Neil, and thank you for what you do through your radio station. Much appreciated. Philip Duncan tells us about AgFest at Greymouth and brings more interesting news about UV levels and how you can be better prepared to avoid melanoma this year. Well, let's go to weatherwatch.co.nz and catch up with Philip Duncan. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Neville. How are you doing? 
In a nutshell, what's happening with the weather? Well, we've got a lot of high pressure uh, moving through the New Zealand area at the moment, and it's uh, it's sort of reminiscent of where we were a year or two ago when things weren't quite as changeable as they've been this year. So a bit more high pressure coming through and perhaps a little bit more in the way of, of westerly winds developing after you know, we've had a number of easterlies around the top of the country lately um, and around the North Island. We're probably about to switch around to, to more of a westerly flow as we go through the next week or two. So that'll be uh, a welcome change, I think, for a lot of places, especially those in the eastern North Island that have had plenty of wet weather and really do just want some warm, dry, windy weather to kick in. <laughs> well, they sure do. Now, Philip, you're off to uh, AgFest. Could you tell the listeners a bit about AgFest because the coasters want to promote themselves down there? Yeah, so, um, yeah, AgFest held, it was held in Greymouth and um, it's, it's I think, about the fourth one they've had now and it's the third third one or maybe the fourth one that I've been to. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and it's uh, it's it's based in, at Greymouth Airport and, and really it's a really big South Island agricultural festival. There are people from the North Island that go to it, but it's heavily uh, South Island based. And it's just a beautiful place to go because it's not sort of your normal, not your sort of normal area to visit. So you got, you know, it's a bit of a mission to get into there where we're flying into Nelson and driving down and then we're flying out from Hokitika at the weekend. Um, and uh, I just can't wait. I, I really love the West Coast. It's one of my favourite parts of the country um, and I'm a North Island boy. I grew up in Bay of Plenty and Waikato and live in Auckland and have lived in all sorts of, uh, have lived in King Country and Wellington as well. So to, to visit the South Island's West Coast is always a treat. So I think it's a great event and uh, people should be putting it on their calendars for next year when it comes back. Now, Philip, your company is about the, well, it's not about, it is the only company that raises the UV levels and let's face it, melanoma kills a heck of a lot of people, probably more than the road toll. What's your outlook for promotion of the UV levels, along with the fact that I think there's an insurance company that's going to be spot-checking farmers down there or anybody that would probably go into the tent down there? What's your views on this one? So, yeah, so um, I, you know, it's great that they do spot checks. I think we should do more of that in New Zealand. Um, we've got on our rural weather website, if you scroll halfway down the page, there's a section that says daily data. And in that daily data, you've got the UV levels for your local property for every hour for the next 10 days. And so you can really see peaks and troughs with that stuff. Now, at the moment... It's a bit of a nerd fest to try and find it. So what our job will be at Rural Weather is to try and bring that to life in some way. Uh, we would love to have it um, a more prominent feature in every forecast every day of the week because we have UV levels that, are, that can be moderate even in the middle of our winter. And right now, even in Southland, uh, the UV rays when the sun's out and the clouds aren't very thick, the UV rays are now considered high already, and we're only in the middle part of October. So we've got another few months to go before we even reach the peak of it, and it's already at high. So that's what New Zealand is. We are we have extreme UV levels, and it will be getting up to extreme in about a couple of months' time from now, by the time we're in December. So it's, it's time to start paying attention. And what our job is to do, rather than to have people looking at boring graphs, it's simply just to have that reminder that UV rays are 
you know, high enough to be protecting yourself. And I think farmers need to be reminded of that. Farmers and growers, those who are outdoors all day, need to be reminded of that a lot more than we realize. You know, it really is like having your nagging mother in the room each day to say, hey, don't forget to put on the, you know, suntan lotion or don't forget to put the hat on. And we sort of do need that even as grown up men, um, uh, because men are the ones that are especially suffering from it. But, but, uh, melanoma rates in this country, both men and women, are high. And I'll just add in there, Philip, you mentioned farming, but I would add in the beach lovers as well, because that's the weather that everybody goes to the beach and gets the sun lotion yeah. washed off. And people who play golf and people who, you know, because golf's another one where you're sitting around in the sun for a long amount of time. And um, if you're not wearing a hat, then your ears and your head and your nose and the cheeks of your face will get more and more damaged. And it's, you know, um, I think you know this from personal experience, and my dad does. He's he's in his, uh, he's just turned 80. He's 81 now. And he's, you know, often has to get little melanomas uh, burnt off his, off his body from, from the damage he's had over a lifetime. And so my parents, when we were growing up, were very, very strict on us wearing suntan lotion and hats. But we still got sunburned way too many times, mostly behind our parents' backs, I might add. <laughs> and that was often at the beach. So, yes, you're, you're very right. Oh, well done, and thank you, Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz. And listeners, remember, you can catch up with Philip on YouTube called <coughs> Weatherwatch NZ. Thank you, Philip. Thank you very much. Now, here's a very serious Jim Hopkins with his opinion of the he waka Ekanara discussions and if implemented the serious consequences for New Zealand farmers and purchases of food for the family. Let's head south to the steampunk capital of New Zealand and catch up with the re-elected councillor Jim Hopkins. Hey Jim, <laughs> congratulations on retaining your seat around the table. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, it's going to be an interesting three years. The government's commissioned this future for local government review. The difficulty with it is it's they've commissioned it and they are going to decide what will happen as a result of it. And basically I fear uh, greatly that, they'll, um, that they're not particularly interested in local government having much of a future at all. Certainly if you look at the way they're rewriting the Resource Management Act and also the whole Three Waters thing, um, they basically want to get rid of councils. That would seem to me to be the way they're thinking. So we've got a fight on our hands for the next three years. We've got um, an interesting mix of experienced and new councillors. Big swing to the centre-right, I think, nationwide, with Wayne Brown in, in Auckland, uh, Jules Radich in uh, Dunedin, Paul Major, in, uh, Phil Major, I should say, in Christchurch. Can't quite work out Tori Farnell, Farnell, but uh, we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> I rather suspect Wellington will be um, the worst for three years of um, cycleways and, and obsession with pedal, pedal power, but um, if indeed that's how things come to pass, I think it's pipes rather than pedals that Wellington should be focused on, but we shall see. Maybe they, maybe that's going to be her agenda. But um, the interesting thing is Jacinda endorsed Afiso Collins and Paul Eagle. She was very effusive about both of them not that long before the election itself, and both of them went down in flames. Um, uh, what does that tell you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But what do you make of the re revamping or re-emergence of Iwaka Ekanawa and oh. the fallout over that is bloody well, appalling? I agree with you. Um, I mean, seriously, look, look, here's the thing that staggers me. 
You know, I've just been reading about, um, you know, various developments like this new cow buka, the probiotic, reduces cows um, burping and farting and thereby emitting methane. And if you add that to the selective breeding that's going on through the livestock um, corporation and so forth, and the use of these new grass strains that the heroic greens won't allow to be tested here, oh, when was the last time they were held to account by anyone in the media for taking that anti-science position? But if you, if you add all this, the, green, the grass is being tested elsewhere because the anti-science greens won't allow it to be tested here. But you take things like cowbuka, you take things like the selective breeding of new strains or of, of cattle and the use of new grasses and so on. And, I mean, the thing that staggers me is you would think it would be in the government's interest to make New Zealand look as good as possible, to be saying to the world, hey, look at all the wonderful things we're doing. Look at the fantastic ways we're sequestering carbon without adversely affecting food production, which is what Article 2 of the Paris Accord says that steps to avoid climate change should not do, and which our government appears to have conveniently forgotten because it's quite happy to put 20% of sheep and beef farms out of business with its new rules. And I just don't understand it. Why aren't they saying how well we are doing and supporting the changes we are making rather than constantly saying, oh, we've got to do better and oh, we need to lead the world. Look, put simply, the world doesn't give a toss about carbon. Well, and it does. Middle-class people do in affluent cities like London, etc. Most people are driven by price. Most people will buy food they can afford. And most people can't afford the luxury of, of, um, of, of paying additional costs to, to satisfy our government's obsession with being, you know, the world leader in these matters. Especially when, I mean, we're not producing anything significant by way of emissions anyway. I mean, you know, honestly... Why we are not saying, look, we'll get into line when China, Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, India, when the really big polluters, uh, even the United States, actually start really genuinely committing and stop building coal-fired power stations and stop actually committing all of the, um, all of the, uh, committing to all of the sort of projects that are going to adversely impact climate change as they are doing now. I just don't get it. I really don't get it. We've got a proposal here that the industry said, no, no, please don't do, don't put charges on. And they've gone and imposed prices that are predicted to put 20% of our sheep and beef farms out of business. They're doing what we've already done to the pork industry. They're destroying our farming base. And they they either don't realise what they're doing, or they don't and the thing about the pork is, do we get any journalists going overseas looking at the places where the pork's now coming from, looking at this, the animal uh, welfare standards, looking at the protections available, looking at the hygiene, looking at the um, emissions? No, 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 no. We've taken a good local industry that was probably a, a leader in terms of, of emissions, and we've kneecapped it, and we're now bringing in, surprise, surprise, not wonderful low-carbon bacon and pork, but cheaper 
bacon and pork. And we can't see that what we're doing with pork and bacon is what the world will do with sheep and beef when we stop producing it. It'll get it somewhere else, it'll get it cheaper, and it'll get it um, irrespective of the emissions. No wonder only 29% of people think the country's on the right track at the moment, and 56% think it's on the wrong track. And I'm sorry, Neville, I'm with them. I'm afraid I am. Well done, and thank you, Mr Hopkins. That was much appreciated. Before I go, Groundswell is holding peaceful demonstration of farm tractors, utes, dogs and cars around the major cities of New Zealand. Go to the Groundswell webpage for more details. I do know that a demonstration will be staged in New Plymouth. Well, that's all I have time for today. Join me next week when we learn more about rural New Zealand. Thanks to Evie, my producer. Catch you next week. Kakiti Anō. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth. Thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com.